This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Wednesday show. It's a cold Wednesday show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a radio program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions or questions about things going on in your lives, um, uh, what we believe as Christians, why we believe it, anything and everything that's on your heart, we'd love to have you call. All you have to do is dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen, and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. Look forward to your phone calls. Um, Tonight, because it's a Wednesday evening, we are going to be doing our Old Testament Bible study tonight. And this is a beginning. Now, that's a play in words because we're in Genesis. Uh, We're going to open the book of Genesis tonight. I'm just going to do an introduction to it tonight. Uh, Really, I'm only going to talk about the first four words, in the beginning, God. And so that's tonight at 7 o'clock. It will also be live streamed. Uh, at calvarysa.com at 7 o'clock if you can't make it. We've always got room on Wednesday nights, so it's a great way to spend your evening if you'd like to come and visit. Um, Tomorrow, Paula will be here with me in the studio on the day day edition of the program, and I think other than that, we're ready to go. Uh, Let me go to the first question that was sent in, this one by Chip uh, from our email inbox. It says, are the Nephilim offspring of fallen angels and women? Was this Satan's plan to dilute the line of man so that he could destroy Jesus' family line and thus preventing Jesus from being born and saving us? And if this is so, how did Satan know about God's plan to send Jesus to rescue us? Good question, Chip. Now, this obviously is a question I think every Bible Q&A program gets a lot. Uh, Genesis chapter 6 is terrifying to to people. And there are a lot of diverse opinions out there. Now, Chip, mine's very strong. I do believe the Nephilim are offspring of fallen angels and women. Uh, The objection to that, of course, is that, well, nowhere in the Bible are we told that angels can have sex. And while that's true, we also can go forward to Genesis uh, chapters 18 and 19 where it became very, very clear that the people in Sodom and Gomorrah believed they could have sex with the angels who were the destroying angels, those who'd come with Jesus to destroy the city. And in the the, the, the reality of, of uh, their appearance as men, uh, they believed they could have sex. Now, I also think we need to look at Jude in this as well. Jude says there uh, is a certain really, really powerful um, level of angel that's so incorrigible, so uncontrollable, that they had to be locked up, awaiting their time at the very end during the Great Tribulation to be released, and and then under the control of Jesus, of course. But um, um, there seems to me, Chip, to be no other explanation um, for the flood that follows. Uh, If these were, as uh, more conservative commentators suggest, the sons of Seth, in other words, they were from Seth's line, they were godly men uh, who um, went into the daughters of of men 
um, uh, it, it seems like God, and we know this isn't true, but, but we see, it seems like God is horribly overreacted. Um, what could be so horrible about that or so surprising about that that God would destroy the whole world in a flood? So this was something that was far more sinister. You're right, it was demonic. This was Satan's plan to uh, not dilute so much as to pollute the line of, of uh, men coming in the world um, to, to make it impossible that the Messiah could be born uh, of a woman um, like Mary. So uh, I think that was his plan to destroy uh, how did Satan know about God's plan? Well, we don't know that specifically, Chip. But what we do know is that Satan has access to the throne room of God. Why he does, I don't know. If I were God, I wouldn't let him in. But we know he has access. And because he has access, he knows the heart and mind of God, just like the good angels do and the fallen angels do. So uh, the fact that Satan knows God's plan doesn't keep him from trying to to defeat God's plan, but but he knows stuff. So again, I, I don't know why God would tell them all of his plans, uh, but he does, and somehow in his sovereignty, uh, he still gets all of the glory. So um, you know we're we're gonna we're starting Genesis tonight. Uh, I'll be uh, very detailed when I get to Genesis chapter six about that. If you want some more detailed information, Chip, you can go to our website, calvarysa.com, and go to the teachings and listen to a study that I've done on Genesis chapter 6. I realize all of the objections, um, but there just doesn't seem, in the context in which it is presented to us, it doesn't seem possible for there to be any other conclusion based on God's reaction to that horrible sin. So thank you very, very much, Jim. Here is a question from Scott. He says, in the parable of the prodigal son, are we being told that we can lose our salvation and gain it back again? And then Scott asks, what is the main point of the parable? Um, Scott, we're not being told anything about that. And I think your, your final question, what's the main point of the parable, is very important. Because all of the parables that Jesus tells have one main point, and I think so often we try to find so many different points that we lose our way in the middle of the parable. And so the the point of the parable is not that we can lose our salvation, uh, we can't gain it back again, that's not at all what he's talking about. What he's talking about is, and the primary point of this parable, is the love that a father has for a child, for a son. Now, the prodigal can go out and spend all of his money on riotous living. He can bring disgrace to the family, um, um, bring disgrace uh, to his community. Certainly all of that was true in the culture uh, that Jesus was speaking to. Uh, But the main point is that the father is always scanning the horizon, looking for his return. The point is the heartbreak of the father whose son who was alive is now dead. And when he comes back after coming to his own senses, um, the, 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 the joy of the father over a single sinner who repents. Now, obviously, we know there's other details in it, Scott. There was a, a son who was equally lost, uh, maybe even more so in the parable of the brother. Um, but uh, the main point is this is the love of the Father. And for anybody, Scott, that you know who's walked away from the Lord or run away from him like the prodigal did, the only thing you need to remember is that the Father is scanning the horizon looking for his return. So if you know somebody, Scott, if you are that somebody who's really, really messed up, the only way you can bring great, great joy to your Father in Heaven is to come home to Him. One of the key lines in that whole parable is when, after squandering all this money, after finding himself in desperate situations, Jesus said, when he came to his own mind, or we might say when he regained his senses, that's when he got up and ran back to his Father. 
we can always run back. Jesus made it possible for us to run back to our Father in Heaven. Thanks for the question, Scott. Dino says, um, in your opinion, what is the most... Oops, I'm gonna, Dino, I'm going to hold your question for a minute. we got a phone call waiting, and I don't want to miss it. Let's go to Ray from San Antonio. Ray, thanks for calling. You're on the line, on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Um, when, when you had said that uh, Satan had uh, access to the throne, you know, that, that first intro kind of thing... Does does he still have that access? And and you know it just it just I'm sorry I was listening to your answer on the next thing and now I've lost part of my my conflagration on what was what was so confusing about that and uh, uh, if you could expound on that a bit as to what we can uh, find from the Bible on what you had said about that and then, uh, you know, what what is the situation for us now? And I'll just listen. Thank you, Ray. Ray, uh, you're not as old as I am yet, but one of these days you're going to learn. Pastor Ron, I'm older than you are. Oh, you are. God bless you, Ray. Oh, quite a bit, yes. Okay, Ray, thank you. Ray, what I was going to tell you to do is start writing things down, because that's what I have to do uh, as I get a little bit older. Uh, Ray, a couple of things. Yes, we know that Satan has access to heaven. We know that from Job. We know that from uh, Paul's testimony in Second Corinthians chapter 12. Um, Satan can't attack us physically. He can't harm us. Uh, without the express permission of God. So, yeah, we know he still has access to the throne of God. Now, we know there's a time coming when that access is going to be cut off. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. That was a a prophecy. That wasn't just a prophecy about his fall from grace, uh, but his expulsion from heaven. We know that he's going to be cast down to the earth. Uh, He knows then that his time is short, and he's going to be really, really angry. But at the time that we live in currently, Ray, Um, The devil still has access to the throne room of God. Uh, He is still privy to the secrets of God, as as the Lord shares. Um, And we also know, and this is one of the things that's hard for us to understand, but he is a servant of God. Now, in his evil, dastardly way, uh, he is still a servant of God. And, And rebel as he might, he still being used to accomplish the will of God. So uh, he is going to be uh, cast out in the future. That time is not yet come, uh, but um, for now he still has access to the throne of God. You asked, what does it mean for us? I, I think two things, uh, Ray. We, we've got to be very sober. Peter tells us to be alert or be on guard because Satan prowls around like a roaring lion looking for opportunities to, to devour. Um, but we don't need to be afraid of him. If our heart is right with God, if we're walking with Jesus, then Jesus is going to protect us from him. But we also need to respect the devil's power. Far too many Christians in their carnality, you know, living on the edge, still indulging the sins of the flesh... And Satan is going to destroy those people. When I say destroy, he's going to create havoc in their lives. He can't destroy in a, in a kill sense without God's permission. But here's the thing. We, when we leave the door open for Satan, you can be absolutely sure that he's going to uh, take advantage of it. And we don't want to give him any opportunities. Uh, uh, Paul writes that we're not to sin in our anger and not to let the sun go down on our anger lest we give the devil a foothold. Um, uh, anything that we do, any way we live our lives that gives the devil advantage over us, believe me, he's going to take advantage of. There's other ones uh, when a husband and wife are not one in heart and one in spirit. Um, um, we're, we're always giving the enemy an opportunity when we uh, are in uh, an inebriated state, whether it's alcohol or drugs, um, the enemy is always going to be there. 
Uh, when we think that we um, have everybody fooled, uh, the enemy is just going to be patient for a minute and then pounce. So we have to be really, really careful. We need to respect the enemy, but not give him too much credit. We need not be afraid of him. And I think Christians, we have a tendency to go to extremes. Either we ignore the devil at all costs, or we are too afraid of him. We blame him for for everything bad that happens. And I think we need, this is one of those areas, Ray, where we need to find balance. Thank you, Ray. I hope that makes sense to you. Here is a question from... Dino, the one I started, he says, um, in your opinion, what is the most important tool for being a leader in business and in church? Um, Dino, uh, this isn't an opinion. This is just uh, what the Bible tells us. The most important tool is be a servant leader. I think too often we we think of being a leader um, um, as, as being in charge. And being a leader following Jesus' model for leadership is washing the feet of people. Um, recognizing that he's in charge. So, Dino, I think that's really, really important, uh, uh, whether it's in a business context or or a leader in church. Um, we need to understand that Jesus is the one that we're representing. Jesus is the one that we're serving. Let me recommend a book for you, Dino, that... Uh, uh, is wonderful, and and I know you can still get you can get it at Amazon, uh, but um, I don't know where you're you're listening to the program from. But if you ever get in Universal City and combine, we'll give you one. Uh, it's a book called The Jesus Style by Gail Irwin. He is a dear dear friend of mine. Uh, he's spoken at our church a bunch of times over the years, uh, and it, it's a book it will give you more insight into the heart and the ministry style of Jesus. And it is a style. I promise you this, Dino. If you would emulate that in business, I promise you, you'd be successful. I can absolutely promise you, you'd be successful. Um, I think some of you know this because you've heard my story many, many times. But I used to be a businessman before I got saved. Uh, This month, I've been saved 29 years. And from the time I got saved, um, I I knew that I was only going to work for the Lord. But uh, I owned a car dealership, or at least a part of a car dealership, uh, for a while. I worked my way up into that position. And, um, you know, I've always thought, as as badly as I messed up being a, a businessman, and when I say messed up, I didn't do it in a way that honored God. Obviously, I didn't know God. But I used to tell the Lord, I used to say, Lord, if you let me go back into business, I'll do it your way. And I know that you'll bless that business abundantly so. And I think I could go right back into the business right now. And it doesn't matter what's a car dealership or any other business. If I would do it Jesus' way, I have no doubt that God would abundantly bless my efforts. That's my way of saying to you, Dino, and anybody else, whatever your business is, whatever your level of responsibility is, if you do it for Him, if you do it His way, I can promise you abundant blessings. People don't believe me because they think, well, it's a business and it's the world that we live in. we got to, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. Um, when in Rome, do it the way Jesus did. When, whatever you're doing, whatever your business, however long you've been doing it, I think a great thing would be to say, Jesus, forgive me for not rightly representing you for not doing things your way but that's going to change give me wisdom fill me with your spirit and then you watch you know what happens I I, business was easy for me Um, I think it would be even easier and certainly a lot more fun and I'd have a lot better conscience if I did it Jesus' way 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is an anonymous one. Um, Pastor Ron, my pastor, is always talking about the need to share Jesus with others. I think he's being unfair. I share Jesus with my life and love, but feel uncomfortable sharing with words. Do you agree with me? Anonymous, I am on your pastor's side 100%. Um... 
we're obligated. Paul said that he was a debtor, both the Greek and Jew, is obligated to share. And we have to share. Let me say something else. And I think I understand your heart. And since I don't know who you, who you are, this, this isn't to be taken personal. But I think it's a cop-out. I think it's permission to be disobedient when people say, yeah, you know, uh, share Jesus and when necessary, use words. You know, those are real cutesy little sayings. But words are what we've got. How will they know unless somebody tell them the Bible says? So our responsibility, Anonymous, is to share Jesus, to declare the good news. Here's what I'd ask you to do. Are you unwilling to make a sacrifice? Are you willing to do something that makes you uncomfortable? For Jesus, the one who hung on the cross for six hours, suffering, being tortured for you? Now, that's not to make you feel guilty. Here's what I'm trying to communicate. That when you are sharing Jesus with others, your whole life is going to change. And what will happen is God will pour out His Spirit upon you. You'll, you'll, you'll find that you know things that you didn't even know you knew. And He'll open doors and He'll open people's hearts. And when you experience for the first time Jesus using you to lead others to Him, it's infectious. And you'll never want to be without that power again. So it's just a matter of taking the step of faith. The uh, Apostle Paul writing to Philemon, he said in the sixth verse of that one chapter treasure, he said to Philemon, who is a pastor, by the way, he said, I pray that you are active in sharing your faith so that you'll have a full understanding of every good thing that we have in Christ. Well, that, that prayer is for you, Anonymous, and it's for me. We need to be active in sharing. Now, try to find a way that's comfortable, more comfortable for you. And by that, I mean we're not going to go up to somebody and ask them if they know the four spiritual laws, or we're not going to go up to somebody and tell them uh, turn or burn. We're not going to use cliches. Use conversation. Just talk to them. Be observant. I had a call, uh, I think, late last week about this. For me, I'm an observant person. So I'm looking at um, uh, the, the kind of car somebody gets out of. I'm looking at bumper stickers that they have in their car. I'm looking for um, things that they do that I know something about that I can talk to them about. I'll look at their T-shirts and see what, what they're advertising. You know, people wear T-shirts with messages on them. I'll look at ball caps, anything. And I'm looking for just a door to open. And when you begin engaging people in conversation, I promise you the power of the Holy Spirit is going to open their heart and they're going to be able to talk to you. So Anonymous, your pastor is trying to help you. Be active in sharing your faith. It'll change your life. You know, Paula hasn't always been, Paula's always been outgoing and she's friendly. You know, uh, Paula can talk to people and say things I'd get punched for. Um, but, but I, you know, there's just something about Paula. Her heart is in the right place and people just start pouring their hearts out to her. You know, they don't do that for me. I've got to dig and probe. But Paula will just go up to somebody and say, well, Hi. And she'll look at their face and she'll say, you look troubled, are you okay? Or how can I pray for you? By the way, Anonymous, that's always a good icebreaker. I love Jesus, how can I pray for you? But you see what happens when Paul is talking to somebody is people just start spilling their guts. And then we get all these opportunities to share Jesus. So take the step of faith and watch what God will do. Imagine somebody might be in heaven because you were obedient. Here is a question. How am I doing on time? A little under two minutes. Um, here's what I can do. I'm going to do it tonight, Matthew. Matthew's question says, When you teach, and then in parentheses says, I listen online. I notice you do not give alternative views so your people can know that there is disagreement on lots of doctrines. 
Why wouldn't you teach, for example, differing views on the rapture? There are others, but that's the last one that I heard. Matthew, we're inside one minute here, so what I'm going to do is just kind of broach the subject, and then on the other side of the break, uh, I will uh, I'll get a little more deeply. Um, Matthew, I don't want the people that I teach to be confused. I want them to know that I'm confident in what I'm teaching, and I've studied the Word. And I want them to know that there's a sense of authority in the Word. So with that set up, we'll get to the other side of the break, and I'll finish. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the program, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. This is the Word to Stand On for Life. We'll be back in two minutes. Don't have time to call into the Word to Stand On for Life? No problem. If you've got questions, you can email them to Pastor Ron at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our program, 340-9585. I'm in the middle or just getting started answering Matthew's question about why I don't give alternative views uh, his example was with the rapture, but there's all kinds of things. Um, why wouldn't I give people information so they know there's, go go dig into your, uh, all of our people here, Matthew, uh, know that uh, I want them to be brilliant, to check out everything that I say. I want them to come to their own conclusions. My job is to give them direction. And imagine when you're standing in front of a church full of people. I do four weekend services, uh, we have a Wednesday night uh, Bible study as well. For instance, tonight in Genesis, uh, I, I'm going to tell people that um, yeah, obviously, you know, there are people that believe that the earth is billions of years old or millions of years old. Uh, and I'm going to tell them it's not true. Uh, we talk about the gap theory when I get there and, uh, and when we get to verse two, finally, um, uh, I'm going to say this is this is where people get uh, the gap theory view. And then I'm going to tell them it's wrong. So, so you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not hiding them from them. In fact, if you listen to my teaching on the rapture, uh, um, I always talk about the other views, and then I say, but those views are wrong, and here's why they're wrong. And I think that the, the Bible teachers need to be confident. Um, I'm certainly not arrogant, but my job is to give the people that God has entrusted to me, what he gives to me. And there just doesn't seem to me any value wasting time. You have no idea, Matthew, how fast 40 or 45 minutes goes. And if I spend a whole bunch of time uh, exposing the people that God loves to, to theories that aren't correct or theories that I believe with all of my heart are false then I'm not going to have enough time for that which is true. And I'm focusing on what is true. And so I'm going to do this very thing tonight uh, over and over. I'll do it throughout the book of Genesis. It's so foundational. And the same thing is true of the rapture. These are things that we need to know, we need to have confidence in. And I want people to be thoroughly uh, instructed in the truth and not worry so much about alternative views. They can go find alternative views. My goodness, everybody's got Google these days, and and um, you can find all kinds of things. But uh, I don't want my people feeling like, well, he doesn't know what's true. Uh, when I hear a pastor say, well, you know, um, this is what I believe. I could be wrong. Um, boy, they don't have any business being in the pulpit teaching, if that's the case. So uh, that's the best I can do with that question, Matthew, but I can promise you it isn't from an arrogant heart. Uh, uh, Just when you've studied enough, a lot, 
and you know the character and nature of Jesus, here's what I know. Uh, and you used the rapture as an example. Uh, post-trib rapture theory or a pre-wrath rapture theory, um, those theories do violence to the character and nature of God. And I have to guess about the character and the nature of God. We're told what that is. And so I can with confidence say that this is what God is going to do. So I hope that's enough. Patricia asked, Pesteron, do you think there's a chance abortion will be outlawed if Trump wins the election? Uh, Patricia, no, I don't. Um, I, I wish, I mean, I really wish that would be the case. But uh, I think we have to be realists. That's a, a door that's been opened. Uh, it is uh, settled and established law. Uh, and and I, I think that kind of a, of a legal ruling um, would be met with um, violence. Uh, I don't think there's any chance. Um, I think the same thing is true, Patricia, for gay marriage. Um, the, 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 the cat's out of the bag and, and those things aren't going to be done. So, um, no, I don't think there's a chance. Now, here's what I do believe, Patricia. Um, and, and again, I, I don't want this to be construed as a political endorsement of Trump because it is not. Um, but But I think what this administration has done and obviously Donald Trump is at the at the vanguard of this administration um, it slows down our descent into evil it slows down I, I think if uh, Hillary Clinton had won the election in 2016 uh, I think we would be so far down that hole of evil and wickedness by now that that there would be no stopping, and I think I think our nation would be um, um, horribly, horribly different. Um, but but we're not going to go undo these things that are already done. And um, I don't care who the president is or is not. Uh, there's limitations. We've seen uh, the impediments that are thrown before this administration by a majority House of Representatives. Uh, and that's going to continue. Um, I, I was just told before we went on the air that that uh, the president has been officially acquitted of the charges of impeachment um, um, or the charges for impeachment. And uh, so he is going to continue. He's going to run for president again. He is likely at this point going to win. Um, uh, but But we've already opened that evil door. And, and it's not going to be undone. I, I think the best thing that we can all do uh, is pray for our president, pray for our House of Representatives, pray for our senators, uh, pray that they would come to know Jesus Christ in their heart, pray that those who are already among them who are believers would actually act like they're believers. And um, I, I think that's the best thing we can do. You know, we want to do more, but um, I think we need to pray for the lost souls and the people that have been given great responsibility. Thus, we'll have great accountability before God in governing in this country. Here is a question from Robert. He says, uh, Revelation 3, 5 seems to me to clearly say that Jesus blots people out of the book of life, meaning we can lose our salvation. May I have your thoughts, please? Um, Robert, I, I get this question a couple times a year, and I always answer it the same way. I don't know how anybody can look at Revelation 3, 5 and see any possibility that Jesus blots people out of the book of heaven. What he says there is he will not blot our name out of the book. That doesn't suggest that there are some names that he blots out, and that's the way we read it. And I don't understand that circular reasoning. If we would learn to, to, to rightly divide the Word of God, we would take that statement in Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, as a lifeline to eternal security. Jesus is saying to the church, I will not blot out your name. And it's very, very forceful in Greek. 
It's in the continuous present tense, and the emphasis is, I will never, never, never blot your name out of the book of life. And, um, I mean, if Revelation 3, 5 says, I will not blot out your name from the book of life, like I blot out some others, then we'd have a problem. But that's not what it says. So, Robert, please look more closely, read it more carefully, and be weary of circular reasoning. Instead, just exegete the passage. What does it say? And what it says to all of us is that we are secure if we are in Christ. And our names will never be erased from the book of life. 340-9585. Uh, Abe asks me, do I have any recommendations on commentaries for Revelation? Um, yeah, Abe, I do a lot of them, actually. And, and uh, these are uh, pr- probably the, uh, the best ones. Um, uh, John Walvoord, W-A-L-V-O-O-R-D. Uh, he has um, a book on, Rev- on the book of Revelation, but he also has a, a verse-by-verse commentary on the book of Revelation. And it is, for me personally, the definitive work. Uh, John Walvoord, uh, Dwight Pentecost. Now, obviously, Pentecost is in heaven with Jesus, uh, but he's got a book called Things to Come. That is excellent. And uh, his is also a standard that has been used uh, for a very, very long time. Uh, I think it's a great book. Um, uh, So I can recommend that. Dwight Pentecost, spelled just like the day of Pentecost. Um, uh, I like William Newell. Uh, I actually love William Newell, uh, Abe, because... Uh, he was one of those guys who was make, making this commentary pre-1948 and believed that uh, Israel would be regathered into their homeland, and that was something that almost nobody believed during that time. And yet he said, look, this is what God's Word says. I believe it. So he wrote his commentary from that dispensational perspective uh, long before there was any evidence to suggest that was going to happen. So I love William Newell, N-E-W-E-L-L. Um, it's not as uh, thorough a commentary, uh, but the same thing is true of H.A. Ironside. Uh, his commentary uh, is also, uh, again, a little simpler, uh, but but uh, he's one of those guys pre-1948 that just believed that, that God was not done with his people Israel and they're going to be back in their homeland. Uh, Abe, and I hope this doesn't sound arrogant at all, but uh, I've got uh, my commentary on the book of Revelation is available for free on our website. All you have to do is go to uh, the teaching section or the, the, the study section, and uh, every one of, uh, of our studies there has uh, my notes. Now, some of those notes are, are applications that are particular to Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, what the Lord is speaking to me as I'm preparing to teach, um, to, to, to instruct this church. Um, but uh, the verse-by-verse commentary, uh, I think, is there. It's, it's readable, and uh, if it has any value for you, you're more than welcome to use it any way that you want. But it is, um, uh, I think, a really, really good uh, and thorough um, verse-by-verse commentary. And the reason I say it's good, not because I did it, but, but I always have a tendency to emphasize the application of those passages. Here's what it says. Here's what it means. But I want to go one step farther and say, okay, here's how you can use that in your life right now. So there's some recommendations right there. Let me give you one other one real quickly. Um, David Guzik. He has his commentary. We like free stuff here at Calvary Chapel. Uh, David is a Calvary Chapel guy. He's a friend of mine. Uh, and his commentary in the whole Bible is available for free online at EnduringWord.com. Enduring Word is the name of his ministry. And he has uh, wonderful resources that are available and available for free. So, Abe, I hope that gives you something to look at. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is my next question, and this is from an anonymous pastor. Uh, your recommendation on raising up leaders and hiring from within or going outside the church to bring in new people, please? Oh, I see. It's a statement, not a question. Um, anonymous pastor. 
Um, neither way is the only way, but you ask for my recommendation. Uh, every one of the people that we have here in a position of leadership, ministry leadership, um, uh, on pastoral staff, my elders, um, those that we have sent out to plant churches. We've planted 32 churches in our, our uh, almost 25 years here. Uh, every one of them was raised up from within. It gives me a chance to get to know them. They get to know me. Uh, we get to, to, to examine their lives. We get to see the fruit of the Spirit, the evidence of God's Holy Spirit in their life. And um, uh, I, I have always felt very strongly and a far, far greater comfort level by raising up people from within. Um, uh, we had yesterday uh, Malta Medical um, um, on the seventh birthday of, of uh, our clinic. Um, the people there that work there have been raised up. So we're just not big on going outside to hire. Now, here, here's the reason that I think, and maybe this is something that you're looking for. Um, I think whenever I've had a need for somebody in leadership position, by the time the need arose, I was aware of somebody that God had prepared to fill that need. I have on two occasions hired somebody from without over the years. Um, and while they were both great guys, um, neither of them lasted the length of time that the people that are raised up here. And I'm huge anonymous pastor on, on stability. Uh, we have very, very little turnover. The only turnover we have here is... Uh, you know, when people go out to plant churches and, and, and my body knows that they're being prepared for that reason. Uh, but it's just more seamless. It's, um, um, I don't have to, to, to unteach. I made up that word. Um, I can just know that they've been subject to who we are, what we believe, and why we believe it. Uh, and so I would recommend raising up leaders inside. Um, the most productive ministry that we've had here, and we've got a lot of productive ministries, but um, I have a, a pastor's discipleship class. Um, at the beginning, when when God seemed to be in a hurry to raise up men to go out and plant churches, uh, that was the first 10 years here at Calvary Chapel. Um, it, it was a class specifically for men who felt like they were called into leadership positions in the church, whether it was to go out and do it themselves or to be raised up here. Um, after about 10 years, um, we began inviting their wives and then other women, single men and single women. And it sort of morphed into a, a class that... Um, Anybody who's really digging in and serious about getting to know the Lord on a deeper level, uh, we want them to be here. And that gives me a whole group of leaders in the church every time the doors are open. And I don't have to tell them what to do. They've been trained. They've been instructed on what to do. And they know God has called them to be a part of this. And we do that class every other Saturday. We have a class coming up this Saturday at 1030. Uh, it's from 10.30 to 12.30 every other Saturday, as long as I'm in town. If I'm in town, we do the, pro, we do the class. Um, and uh, the, the fruit that has come from that one ministry uh, has been more abundant than I can adequately communicate. Uh, and it doesn't take long. God works on people's hearts. When we have people anonymous who come in uh, from other churches and they want to get really involved and they get excited and I, I'm grateful for that. But we kind of slow their jets a little bit, tell them, you know, why don't you start serving somewhere um, in, in a, I call them invisible ministries or anonymous ministries and just get to know people, let people get to know you. Um, you can get to know my heart as you sit under my teaching for a couple of years. You're going to really know my heart because my heart is always out there. And we want people to um, to to seamlessly translate or transfer 
into a position, and it just works out far better for us. I don't have anybody saying, well, you know, my old church, they did it like this. It just works better for us, and that would be my recommendation. Good luck to you. Tabitha says, uh, Pastor Ron, when should we separate from other believers over doctrinal differences? Um, Tabitha, it depends what you mean by separate. If you mean separate, not have any contact with, probably never. Um, if they're real believers, unless their doctrine is heretical, uh, then we need to give people the liberty to believe different things. Uh, I have people that come to my church, and I'm very direct, and I'm very strong in terms of this is what it says, and, and, and this is what we believe. Uh, but i got a lot of people here who, um, you know, they've been raised in other church traditions or in their own study. They've come up with their with different conclusions about things. And I would never ask them to leave. I'd never separate them as long as they weren't sowing discord in the church. I got one of the nicest emails uh, um, last week from a guy who, when he first came, came now he's been coming for five, six years now, but when he first came, I'd get these emails and everyone would start, well, I'm a Calvinist and I think this and I think that. And it was over and over and over. And I just said, well, you know, either find a Calvinist church or just sit and learn. And he chose to sit and learn, and and his views have changed radically. And, you know, we, we've never had a crossword. So I, I don't think separation should ever be our goal. Now, if the doctrinal differences are heretical differences, then there are occasions where we might have to separate. If somebody was to come to this church and they were a oneness uh, believer or a Jesus-only believer or I mentioned Calvinism a little bit and they wouldn't be quiet. You know, Pastor Ron said this, but here's the real way, the, the real thing that's true. Then then we, we might, we'd ask them to, to stop doing what they're doing. If they wouldn't, then we'd ask them to leave. We, we don't want discord in the body. How can two walk together unless they agree to do so? And so uh, I don't think that should ever be the case. Now, um, Tabitha, you didn't ask about this, but there are times we need to separate from, from other believers over sin issues in their lives. But doctrinal differences, we need to be willing to give people the freedom to believe whatever they want to believe. And the Lord will sort of take them um, wherever he thinks they need to go. Sometimes they they uh, they stay, and other times they don't. But but we don't need to separate. Hope that makes sense. Uh, Rob says uh, the Bible says that we shouldn't sin, but we do sin. And then Rob says, "How can I reconcile the two? Um, Rob, I don't think you have to reconcile. The Bible says we shouldn't sin. We should always aim for perfection. When we sin, we're told that we have an advocate." The one mediator between man and God is the man Christ Jesus. So when we sin, um, all we have to do is ask for forgiveness, 1 John 1, 9. But remember this, the man, this is 1 John again, the man who says he doesn't sin is a liar and the truth isn't in him. So as long as we're in these flesh and blood bodies, Rob, we're going to fail at times. Some of us fail a lot of the time. And yet there's no tension between uh, me sinning and the Bible saying we shouldn't sin. Paul says, what shall I say then? Shall we go on sinning because grace abounds? No, God forbid. So you're right. The Bible says we shouldn't sin. We should walk with Jesus, be as close to him as we possibly can. Uh, we need as best we're able to resist temptation when it comes. But when we do, then we run to Jesus asking for forgiveness, and for the restoring of fellowship with him. So again, I don't see the tension that you see there. Uh, aiming for perfection, um, the fact that we can't be perfect isn't an excuse not to aim for perfection. I think sometimes we Christians who are a little more performance-oriented or a little more legalism-oriented, I think, um, you know, we think, well, what, what do I have to do? Um, all we have to do is be with Jesus. Last question for the day. This half hour has gone fast. Uh, from Joshua, uh, what do you think is the biggest threat to Christianity today? 
Um, Joshua, I think we are. Let me explain. Um, uh, I think biblical ignorance or illiteracy is the biggest threat. Um, we've got churches that don't teach the Bible. Uh, we've got people that want to go to churches that give them goosebumps or make them feel good but don't really instruct. They might tell you what to do but don't tell you how to do it. Uh, and I think because of our spiritual immaturity, and I, I mean specifically by that, we simply don't know the Bible. We don't know how to study it. And I think we're open to being deceived. I think the best anyone can do who is not a workman rightly dividing the Word of God, I think the best anyone, male or female, can do is to be lukewarm or compromised in their faith. Uh, And I think we need to be stronger doctrinally, foundationally. Um, I'm going to use a Catholic word, but we need to be catechized. And by that, I mean we need to know what we believe and why we believe it. I think personally, Joshua, that's the biggest threat. I think I'll, I'll save this question because I've got some other ideas on it, Joshua. I'll do that on Friday's program. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Paula will be live in studio with me tomorrow on the Date Day Show. We will see you then. God bless. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.